0: This is a download from Newstalk 106 to 108. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking books on Newstalk
1: 106 to 108.
2: don't hit things with their heads. Some inbuilt atavistic instinct says so. A headbutt changes the game. It adds that kind of unhinged savagery into the mix. An unprovoked headbutt is like bringing a sawn-off shotgun to a knife fight. The bracing words of one of crime fiction's most successful protagonists, Jack Reacher. Hello, good morning, and you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. What makes for the perfect anti-hero? Is it their badass nature, their highly strung personality, or their exquisite instinct for protection and non-conformity? On this week's show, British novelist Lee Child brings me up to speed on his famous action hero, the enigmatic Jack Reacher, and he explains the glorious art of the headbutt.
3: It is a European character in its origin back in the Middle Ages when Europe was empty and dangerous and there was a sort of frontier field to parts of Europe. But, of course, that disappeared centuries ago. So the character was forced out to America. And so, no, you know, English fiction or European fiction tends to be terrific but very internal, very psychological, kind of tight and limited. You know, you think about Ian Rankin who writes about, like, one square mile of Edinburgh or the Barbara Vine books, a couple of streets in North London. You know, that that's very terrifying. Tight, and you can't have the expansiveness there, and so Rita would not have worked in Britain.
2: And in keeping with the theme of movement and fantasy, we're going to take a bit of an exotic literary trip to Spain and South and Central America, and preview the third Irish Spanish Latin American Literary Festival, which takes place in Dublin's Instituto Cervantes from the 17th to the 19th of October, featuring writers from Ireland, Mexico, Spain, Chile and Argentina. This is a show about heroes and villains, brutality and justice, and the relationship between passion, imagination and culture. But first, writing Jack Reacher with the gigantic Lee Child. Lee Child is one of the world's most successful thriller writers. He has sold over 70 million books and has been translated into 41 languages worldwide. Not surprising that his Jack Reacher series consistently hits the number one slot on the bestsellers list on both sides of the Atlantic. Incidentally, most of Lee's books have been optioned for major motion pictures. Not bad for a man who decided to become a writer at the age of 40 after being made redundant from his day job in Granada Television. So what makes a Lee Child novel and the character of Jack Reacher so universally appealing to the modern reader? And interestingly... How does the personality of Reacher play into a reader's sense of imagination, adventure and fantasy? Well, here's a little insight into Jack Reacher's kick-ass, if a little heavy-duty, personality. So here goes. Fighting is a mental process, not physical. The second you realise where the thing is heading, start swinging. Never take the first blow. That's just plain dumb. Yep, some handy advice there from Mr Reacher. Well, Personal is Lee Child's 19th Jack Reacher novel and has just been published by Bantham Press. Now, I have to say, I'm not a big fan of thriller writing. And if I was honest, well, I'm a little tough to please. That said, Lee Child knows how to put together a really good story. I was hooked and in a strange sort of rough relationship with Reacher by page 20. Lee's a sardonic, muscular, compact and wonderfully vigorous writer. I absolutely loved the pace. Easy to see how so many people have become obsessed with the Jack Reacher series. It's wonderful escapism. Well, a few weeks ago, Lee rode into town to take part in the Mountains to the Sea DLR Books Festival. And lucky for me, I got a chance to have a nice hot coffee with the master of thriller writing. Lee was an absolute gent, but interestingly, was well able to throw a little punch. I asked Lee about his first Reacher book, The Killing Floor from 1997 and how he developed the character of Reacher, an off-the-grid loner, an ex-soldier who doesn't have a credit card, a mobile phone, and buys new clothes every 3 days. A man who owns nothing but a pocket toothbrush, a man who was both good and bad.
3: Yeah, I think it's what makes him popular because I don't hide the bad, you know, and I think that's a trap that authors fall into where you've got a hero that is the only selling point for your series. Uh, You tend to become too defensive, you fall in love with that hero, you end up with a kind of homogenized, bland sort of character. So my theory has always been I must like him a little bit less than I hope you're going to like him. So I keep all the bad stuff in, yeah. All the warts, everything, because that makes him a more honest character and ultimately therefore, more appealing.
2: What's it like writing about a very lonely man?
3: Well, that's the interest for me, because writers are lonely. You know, writers are lonely, isolated people generally. And so we can project our own feelings onto these characters. And what I've got with Reacher is a guy who is profoundly happy with his solitude, but at the same time, very worried about being lonely. And I think that tension uh, inside of him is what makes him interesting, because he is happy to be on his own. But you can always see in him this desire just to connect with people if only briefly.
2: Now Personal is your 19th book in the Reacher series. Can you tell me about it?
3: Yeah, it's uh, always a challenge you know, when you do a long series because you've got one fundamental proposition which is it's a series and therefore people want it because they want the familiarity so you've got to make it the same but you've also got to make it different because you don't want to write the same book every year because people don't want to read the same book every year so the same but different and Personal gets different in the sense that the geography is a little more more glamorous than previously you know normally he's hanging out on the dusty back roads of America but this time he goes to Paris France he goes to London England which for him of course is uh, interesting because he's a fish out of water everywhere so the idea to have a fish out of water this big clumsy awkward guy in Paris and then London I think it was fun for me and I think it's fun for the reader.
2: So did you write this from your New York office? Or what way did you do it?
3: I did it uh, in New York. Yeah. But you know, obviously, I know London well, and I know Paris pretty well. So it was not, you know, a research issue for me, but it was more a characterization issue. You know, what is he going to notice? What is going to be on his mind when he gets there, which is great for me, because I, you know, obviously born and brought up in Britain, but haven't lived there for a long time. So when I go back, I do notice a changed country. And I notice things that I think are weird, that he's going to think are weird.
2: But within all of that, it must be very easy to fall into a repetitive pattern in how you write because 19 books of one character is a lot to do I think Ian Fleming got to by 12 or 14.
3: Yeah very few people have gone much more over 20 you know although you got to say May Gray, I suppose by George Simonon I think there were 75 of those so it is possible but um, times change you know May Gray was a long time ago James Bond was a long time ago this is a, a new era and you do have to avoid repetition you've got to provide the familiarity and the comfort that people enjoy. Without being repetitive. So it is a bit of a balancing act.
2: And what's it like writing a lot of violence into a book?
3: It's cathartic, I think, for everybody because I think it's a very subtle and sophisticated thing going on there with the reader that they are not really titillated by the violence. They read the violence because they know that they can't have it in real life. Real life is very unsatisfactory in a lot of ways. You see an injustice, there's often not much you can do about it. Or if your house gets burgled, they're not going to catch the guys, you're not going to get your stuff back. There's no closure in real life, and therefore we we turn to it on the page because we miss it, but at the same time we know we can't and shouldn't have it in real life. It, I think it's an escape valve. It's a relief. It's a sort of consolation. It's. A, I don't personally feel there's anything kind of bad about it. I think it's actually a good thing. If you can, if you can release the pressure in the fantasy life, then it makes us more civilized in our real life.
2: But a lot of people would argue quite differently there and say that from where people build boundaries between where you draw the line between fantasy and real life, and the people blur the border.
3: There will be people that can't recognize those borders, but then, you know, those people are going to be problematical under any circumstance. It's not as if violence was invented when we got books or television, you know, it's always happened. And therefore, I don't think that we can, we can suffer responsibility for it.
2: Now, he kicks down doors. He's known for the artful headbutt. Can you talk me through how you put together some of those scenes? Because they're very descriptive. They're quite intense, but they're brilliantly written. And I know that when I ask any of my male friends, they would say they love that stuff and they don't get enough of it.
3: Yeah, I think that what I do is, is, you know, in my particular circumstances, just remember back to when I was a kid, you know, because I grew up in Birmingham, England, which was a rough town at the time, and everything was violence. It was just the instinctive natural recourse of two kids. You know, if you had a problem, you wouldn't talk about it. You'd fight it out. And so all that stuff is a memory of some alley somewhere or in the school playground or something with three or four people squared up against me. You know, what did I do? And I would figure it out from that point. And
2: it's a long way to knocking off Jake. K. rolling over the bestsellers list. How do you cope with such huge success? Because within all of that, that brings a tremendous amount of pressure.
3: The pressure comes when you're not successful. It's so self indulgent to talk about pressure coming from success because, you know, the real pressure in my life and everybody else's life is when you don't have enough money to pay the bills and you are struggling. That's pressure. This is really what they call a very first world problem. And it brings a bit of writing pressure because at the beginning, you know, you've got nobody depending on it, nobody is really waiting for it. And then over the years, more and more people. And now we've got millions of people waiting for the next book. And it would be very easy to be paralyzed by that vision. You know, you've got to satisfy millions of people. But the way around that for me is that I just write for myself like I always have. This is just my project. And if other people are are kind of leaning over my shoulder watching it, then I'm not aware of them while I'm doing it.
2: But Lee, you've had dark times. You were made redundant in one stage and you reinvented the world. You moved to America. You became a very successful writer. So do you think that empathy in some ways of understanding the great highs and the great lows makes you build more broader characters?
3: I think so. And I think it's part of Reacher. He is not impressed by success. He's the sort of guy who will stick up for the little guy. And that's something that I learned, you know, I as a shop steward while I was working. And it's always been about the average guy for me. Without in any way patronizing them, you've got to say that some people do need help and some people are not good at everything. And so if you can help them out in some way, then you should. Uh, that's Reach's attitude, a kind of noblesse oblige thing almost a Marxist principle from those who have to those who need. And uh, I think that's the way to live.
2: Can you talk to me a little bit about Reacher's sexuality?
3: Yeah, I mean, he's a guy who uh, he loves women. That's the thing. And as do I, Uh, all my friends are women and people I spend time with are are women. And partly because I think women are more interesting. I'm a guy, I know what guys are like, you know, so I would prefer to spend time with people that are different than me. And Reacher's the same. I think he respects women. He treats them absolutely as his equal, but he's also interested in him in a romantic way. But respectfully, you know, he's, he's the sort of guy who will be rebuffed and take no for an answer, simply because he knows, well, yeah, hey, tomorrow, you know, there'll be somebody different. Like that old Jimi Hendrix song, if she doesn't love me anymore, I'm sure her sister will.
4: And
2: Tammy, speaking of sisters, were you conscious of the female reader when you were devising this more enlightened man in some ways, yet violent in other ways? He's quite mixed.
3: He is mixed, but you can't afford to take that into account. I think, you know, you would understand anybody in entertainment understands, you can't force it. You can't manufacture it. You can't make a list of things you should do. You just got to do an honest product and hope for the best. I mean, it could have been that everybody hated it, but all you can do is an honest product.
2: Do you think there are reachers out there?
3: I'm sure there are. Yeah. You know, there are dozens. I mean, I think everybody's got a bit of reacher in them, which is what makes it uh, popular. I think we would all like to do the right thing. We would all like to stick up for the little guy. And of course, we can't most of the time because we don't have the power or it's in some hierarchy situation it's at work or whatever you can't get away with it and we we feel frustrated about that so the idea that that you see somebody doing it it's not really living out of fantasy it's living out our innermost wish
2: can you talk to me a little bit about living in america because you've written books that have crossed america mm. and some of the uncomfortable underbelly that exists in america it's an extraordinary place i've lived and worked in america and i imagine from a story point of view it's incredible
3: it is incredible. I mean, you know, you can't make this stuff up. Everything that you could think of happens in America. And the point is, America's not really homogenous. You know, it's a gigantic continent with an enormous amount of variety. To talk about America is a bit like talking about Europe. You know, the distance diagonally from one corner of America to the other is bigger than the distance from Murmansk in Russia to Marrakesh in Morocco. It's gigantic, and everybody is different. There's a patchwork, it's a mosaic, and some parts of it are, are great, some parts of it are awful. So Some attitudes are awful. Some attitudes are good. People, generally speaking, are full of goodwill and uh, they're very helpful. They're very kind. But you find some awful attitudes there. There are some intractable problems. It's just an endless source of fascination to me.
2: And do you think you could have ever developed Reacher in Birmingham?
3: I don't think so because that particular character depends on space, big geography, wide horizons, emptiness, danger, danger in a frontier sense. So it is a European character in its origin back in the Middle Ages when Europe was empty and dangerous and there was a sort of frontier field to parts of Europe. But of course, that disappeared centuries ago. So the character was forced out to America. And so no, you, you know, English fiction or European fiction tends to be terrific, but very internal, very psychological, kind of tight and limited. You know, you think about Ian Rankin, who writes about like one square mile of Edinburgh, or the Barbara Vine books, a couple of streets in North London, you know, that that's very tight. And you can't have the expansiveness there. And so Richard would not have worked in Britain.
2: But it's interesting, a lot of your readers come from Ireland and England. Now you're incredibly successful in America, yet they would like those other novelists that you mentioned.
3: Yeah, and uh, I'm always very happy about that. You know, it's great. But there's a huge connection between Ireland and America. You know, America is Irish in a way. There's a big component in America that is purely Irish, of course. And so, and of course, that's true of all nationalities. They all have their influence on America. So the fact that America likes it, it doesn't make it surprising that the origin countries are going to like it too.
2: How do you think Reacher deals with boredom and routine? He doesn't do routine. Do you think that is a bit of a fancy in itself? Because we all, no matter how extravagant or interesting, or unique or odd we live our lives we have certain habits daily do you think some of those ideas are a bit stretched or maybe I date it
3: I think that it is part of the fantasy that we could walk away, you know, because we're all bogged down in a million different things, jobs, homes, mortgages, bills, all that kind of stuff. And the idea of walking away from it, I used to think was a male fantasy, really. But it turns out the more I speak to people, it's equally a female fantasy. They would love to do that. Just move on and be somewhere else tomorrow. I think that's a huge part of it.
2: But when you're giving readings, presumably a lot of those in the audience are men. Because when I said to a whole stack of different friends this weekend I was meeting you, all the guys went crazy. So most of the women had heard about you but it was the men who really got excited. So is it that some way that Reacher works for male fantasy in all sorts of levels because there's the, the boy in them.
3: Yeah, I think that definitely does. But equally, my experience is that it works for women too. And then you got to look at the difference in, in how people communicate. And women are much more open to come and talk to you. Guys are inhibited about showing up and saying to an author, I-, I like you. You know, that's a difficult transaction for a man. Whereas women have no problem with coming up and saying, hey, I love these books. And so generally speaking at a book signing, it, there's about half and half men and women And The women are always much more vocal. The men will probably show up to listen to the talk or whatever, but then they disappear. They don't want to be part of the queue afterwards, getting their book signed, saying, I like this stuff, because that's somehow too difficult for men to say.
2: Lee, do you read philosophy?
3: I used to, yeah. In fact, I did philosophy at university along with law. So I, uh, you know, I try and keep in touch with it.
2: Because I read something interesting recently where you talked about Albert Camus and you compared, you know, writing to the metaphysical process. Well,
3: you know, I, I try and keep that at a low level because you know these are not educational books, they're not textbooks, they're just real simple entertainment. But I think that philosophy is inevitable. you know it's not like something that we can uh, add on or you know it's not like an optional extra in your life. It is in fact your life. you know life is philosophical. And so there are certain philosophers. Camus would be one who are very good at describing the human condition. and I think that's novelists are bottom. We're always trying to describe the human condition, sure.
2: But we don't have to be beaten down with convoluted intellectualism to understand and grapple with the big questions in life.
3: No, we don't. But that's, uh, I think that's a good way into philosophy. You know, your own life is a work of philosophy. And you figure out, you know, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? Why don't I want to do this? Or why do I want to do that? Those are philosophical questions. Can you tell
2: me about some of the normal stuff?
3: Yeah, well, you know, the great thing about my wife and daughter is that they knew me before I, I was famous. You know, they know me as just their husband or their dad and so they're really very unimpressed by the whole thing you know I'm just a guy to them and I have a great relationship with them both especially my daughter you know we uh, get along really well and we actually worked together last year we we wrote a tv show together it was really really a great thing to do because for the first time in 30 plus years it was not father and daughter we had to be two complete equals and that was very eye-opening for me
2: but your wife is going to bed with two men John (laughs) Grant and Lee Child which one does she get on a daily basis
3: Oh, she gets, uh, she, she doesn't get any reacher on a daily basis. And I, I don't either. You know, the thing about writing the books is you can't live this guy all year round. You know, he only shows up when it's time to write the book. And therefore, he's in, very much in the background. And he, and he has to be kept at arm's length, because otherwise, he becomes too familiar.
2: Do you think he could reach burnout? Uh,
3: no, I mean, burnout is for, you know, a nurse in the emergency room or the people that really have to work for a living. I mean, I'm, I'm making no complaints whatsoever. This is a dream job you know burnout is very far from from my list of worries
2: but you've done 19 that's a lot to get through in nearly 20 years
3: well it's one a year you know which is not bad I used to work in live television where a deadline would be five minutes and so this is deadline once a year is pretty much a luxury
2: you don't miss the television
3: I miss the immediacy of it and I miss the collegiality of it you know that you would get into work in the morning and there's a bunch of 10 or 20 really bright funny people all around with the latest jokes and the latest punchlines and it was just intensely social and a lot of fun a lot of mental gymnastics and i miss that i mean writing is very solitudinous it's a very lonely job so that's the biggest contrast and i do miss that yeah i miss that daily exposure to fun people
2: final dirty question lee Old age, how do you feel about it?
3: Old age, I'm really coming up against that now, because as you know, I was in television uh, for half my career, and I accumulated a pension, and therefore that pension is going to be paid out when I'm 60, which happens to be next month, and and that's a really weird thing, because normally I was always the youngest at everything, you know, whatever the thing was, I would be the youngest guy doing it, now I'm the oldest guy doing it, and that takes some getting used to, yeah, I feel okay, I feel like maybe over the last five or so years I've been sort of going downhill a little bit bit but you know I'm certainly not decrepit but it is creeping up on me that almost literally 50-60 percent of the world is now younger than me and that is um that's an odd feeling because when you're young you always think oh it's all coming it's all ahead you get into this habit of thinking you know what's next what's next and then at some point you got to realize well wait a minute there are more leaves on the ground now than there are left on the tree and that's a big transition
2: and that was best-selling author Lee Child. Talking to me about Personal, his 19th book in the Jack Reacher series. Okay, coming up next, we're going to breeze through some of the best reads from Spain and Latin America. Oh yes, lots of high emotion, expression and colour. Think Carlos Fuentes, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Octavio Paz and Jorge Luis Borges. But first, let's take a bit of a break. Talking
0: Books, on
1: new sock 106 to 108.
2: And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on Newstalk 106 to 108. I'm Susan Cahill. Okay, if there's a book or author you'd like me to cover on the show, well, why don't you send me an email at talkingbooks at newstalk.ie. It's always great hearing from you and getting your opinions of what's going on on the show. And of course, I'm always up for ideas. Now, if you snooze through any of our recent shows, well, don't worry. They're all up as podcasts on the programme webpage, all you need to do is go to www.newstalk.ie forward slash talking books and you can listen to any of our programmes at a time that works for you. It's all very straightforward. Okay, let's now move into the gorgeous, evocative and sensuous world of Latin America and Spanish literature. So I've a question for you. Can the literature of other countries offer a different perspective on our own situation and help us grapple with some of the big challenges and questions we have in life? Well, my next guests believe it can. From the 17th to the 19th of October, the third Irish-Spanish-Latin American Literary Festival takes place in Dublin and it promises to be a really interesting weekend. There will be lots of poetry readings a discussion on building identities in literature, the art of the short story and a fascinating documentary from Bogota called Gabo which looks at the unique life and literary legacy of Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Speakers at the festival include Hugo Hamilton, John Banville and Claire Keegan and there will be full-time interpreters at the Instituto Cervantes at Lincoln Place, Dublin 2.0. Over the weekend to help interpret to or from Spanish and English. Well, last week I caught up with three of the festival organisers. Let's take a listen.
5: Buenos dias. Uh, my name is uh, Miriam Abuin and I'm the Press and Communications Officer for Instituto Cervantes, uh, the Spanish Cultural Institute in Dublin.
2: My name
0: is Kieran Cosgrove. I'm an academic. I work in Trinity College and in the Spanish department, and my main interest, I suppose, is in Latin American literature.
1: Hi, my name is Ana Maria Crow Serrano. I'm a poet and and a translator of poetry from Spanish and Italian into English.
2: Kieran. can I start off with you and ask you, how accessible is literature from either Spain or South and Central America to Irish audiences?
0: Well, obviously uh, certain poets, certain novelists have a certain prestige and I think the translation industry has done a good service, especially for authors from Latin America. Not so much, I think, from the point of view of the Spanish writers, I think since the Spanish Civil War have not been sufficiently translated and um, marketed I think in the English speaking world but uh, that's not the case with Latin America because there are a lot of key names people like Garcia Marquez the novelist Borges the short story writer Pablo Neruda poet are, are fairly well known in that the translations are, are fairly accessible and people would know these names I think since the Spanish Civil War Spanish writers I think have not had the prominence in the English speaking world that they deserve probably
2: And Ana Maria as a poet and as a translator would you agree with that that maybe some of the Spanish writers have been overlooked by trans- Translators or the publishing industry. There's a, a percentage that's uh,
1: been coming up lately quite a bit, which is 2%, and that is the amount of books that are published in English in the English speaking world globally, which are translations from foreign languages. So basically, we only get 2% of what's written abroad, and in terms of literature, that would be even a smaller percentage. So we have a tiny, tiny access to foreign literature. Kieran has mentioned, you know, Borges and Neruda, we're quite familiar with, but there are many, you know, newer writers that were just not familiar with at all unless you speak the language that they write in so
2: we're missing out in a world of
1: literature aren't we we certainly are yeah it's an awful shame because literature really is um it's a kind of record of the soul of a culture and by missing out on it we're missing out on other countries thought processes on why they think the way they do um and it would be so useful for us in this completely multicultural world and increasingly multicultural world that we live in. It's of you know very important to understand why other cultures think the way they do, so that we can you know understand them and also shed light on the way we think to try and alter our perspectives,
2: learn something new. And so, can you tell me some of the the well known Spanish or Central or South American writers that are coming to the festival and a bit about their work?
5: We have José Álvarez coming from Spain. He's uh, he's very well known as a novelist and his novels are uh, real page turners and they're actually uh, translated into English some of his uh, the latest ones are Nothing Ever Happens or The Invention of Love we have Diamela Eltit coming from uh, Chile she's uh, I think uh, Ana Maria has uh, a lot to say about her and about her her, her writing she writes prose but uh, she does write in a very poetic way her language and the mechanisms she uses when writing are very close to, to poetry
1: yeah. Uh, uh, I'm particularly interested actually in hearing Diamela El Tite at the festival. She made the very unusual decision to stay in Chile during the Pinochet regime because she wanted to protest against the regime from within it, which was a, a very brave thing to do. Uh, so she focuses a lot on people, on the margins, people who are repressed and oppressed, and she tries to give them a voice. Uh, this is a kind of a, a theme in her literature, tries to do that. She's considered Chile's uh, one of Chile's avant-garde writers, which is uh, very interesting because from a structural point of view, She also tries to speak out against the dominant trends, I suppose, and some of her writing doesn't follow traditional narrative.
2: And Kieran, what particularly are you looking forward to?
0: Well, uh, what I wanted to say, and I think it's very important to say that the two previous Isla festivals Mm. have been wonderful encounters between not just Spain, Latin America, but we must remember Irish writers also participate. And I think the dialogue and colloquy between the Irish writers present, the Spaniards and the Latin Americans has been a, a wonderful a wonderful a, a wonderful experience I think for, for all of us you know I, I see it very much as a dialogue between cultures I think the Isla Festival and I think we should pay homage to the Cervantes Institute and indeed the embassies who help out in making this kind of uh, event possible I think it's been very well organised in the past and I think we look forward to another event uh, this year
2: Now Karen, for those who are maybe new to Latin writers I know you're particularly fond of some Argentinian writers mm. some very well known ones mm.
0: Some some of my favourite writers do happen to be from from Latin America more so probably in in the in the in the latter end of the 20th century than, than Spanish writers have been for me I mean obviously writers like Jorge Luis Borges Borges would be very well known as a fiction writer as a short story writer and I think is is perhaps one of the best short story writers writing anywhere in any language you know
2: and he's very much a legend for most writers tremendous talent
0: yeah I mean he he, he had a huge influence I think on on writing throughout the world in many different languages you know and he, he did come here actually about 25 years ago just just before he, he, the year before he died, and took part in, a, in the Dublin Literary Festival, he was here for a single day. And uh, some of his stories are actually based in in Ireland, even though he'd never been to Ireland when he wrote the stories. So there, there again, you have a kind of a connection which uh, which he forged because he was very very interested in the in the anglophone world and had a particular interest in Ireland, even though he hadn't he hadn't ever visited. But I mean, other writers like Gabriel Garcia Marquez would be well known for for key works like Hundred Years of Solitude, which was a key novel in the latter end of the 60s and as Garcia Marquez who died last year has had a huge influence on on many writers uh, in the English language you know his the whole term magical realism which is one that can be a term that can be abused I think you know has certainly had a big impact on writing in English you know I mean people like Salman Rushdie and so on mm. have been very much influenced by Garcia Marquez
5: and I think Miriam you're going to have a screening of Gabo at the festival actually the the Embassy of Colombia in the UK has, uh, lent us this uh, this documentary it's a very huge human journey through his life, through the places he lived in. Uh, He lived in La Habana and Mexico City and basically is visiting all these places that were so important in his life, in his personal life as well as his writing, talking to people close to him, brothers or family members, have a more personal view of, of him away from that celebrity, from the Nobel Prize image that we have from him.
2: And Anna Maria, would there be any particular poets that you would be interested in or think that Irish people should introduce themselves to.
1: I've always loved the surrealists in Latin America César Vallejo for example Uh, he has been translated beautifully by Michael Smith and Luis Ingelmo it's published by Shearsman that book that they translated and it really I think translates uh, César Vallejo very well because he used what you can only describe as wacky sort of imagery and combinations of words he really tried to stretch language to I don't know to explore all kinds of themes and they managed to capture very well what he was trying to do in his poetry so yeah I I would certainly recommend César Vallejo. He's my favourite.
0: Maybe I could follow up on what Ana Maria has just said because Vallejo, is not terribly well known yet and should be much better known in the English-speaking world and has been very well translated into English. But uh, his main work was produced in a year that was symbolically very important in many uh, cultures. 1922 is the publication of a a book called Trilce that he wrote. But it was also the year that T.S. Eliot wrote The Wasteland. It was also the year that Joyce uh, published uh, Ulysses. So 1922 is a big year and I think Vallejo is a a very important figure. I would also mention Pablo Neruda. Neruda is probably better known than Vallejo in the English-speaking world and I think Neruda is a very important figure because in a way he links Spain and Latin America because something a lot of people don't realize in the 1930s during the Spanish Civil War period, there were an awful lot of writers, not just from Latin America but from the English-speaking world as well people like Auden and Spender and so on ended up in Spain during the Spanish Civil War and Neruda after the defeat of the Republic and victory of Franco was instrumental in organizing huge uh, evacuation of, of Spanish Republican sympathisers to Latin America, particularly to Spain, but also to Chile and other countries. So there's a real nexus there between Spain and Latin America, I think.
2: And his diplomatic and political work. He had a very interesting life, didn't
0: he? Coming with a lot of Latin American writers, they, they tended to end up in ambassadorial roles. Mm-hmm. And uh, Pablo Neruda and Octavio Paz, the Mexican, mm-hmm. was another case in point, ended up representing their countries politically. And I think maybe it's important to say that there's um, politicisation in in the best sense of the word in Spanish and Latin American writing which I think is often not the case writing in English, you know, where writers don't see a disconnection between politics and writing. You know, Writing is a political act, you know, and I think it's very interesting to see also the case of writers who frequently pronounce on political issues, you know, the case of and it's not always left-wing writers I mean, you have uh, writers like Vargas Llosa who was here in Dublin actually a couple of years ago as well, who might be said to be on the right wing of the political of political thought. He writes about political Issues in the newspapers and so on. We, we don't really have a tradition in Ireland or in England where creative writers write on political issues in the daily newspapers. And I think, you know, we can all learn from that, you know, that politics mm. doesn't have to be separated out from creative writing. It's part and parcel of it as well.
1: Can I just mention in relation to that that one of the writers at uh, the festival this year is Fernando Sabate, and he's also a political commentator apart from a novelist. He's um, he set up a party called Basta Ya against um, the Basque terrorist organization. He's also a philosopher. So Mm. uh, he also is a journalist. Yeah, so as Kieran says, you know, that's one particular writer Mm. who uh, goes beyond fiction in in his writing and his thought.
2: And Kieran, i I'm wondering, is there an uneasy relationship between Spain and Latin America in terms of one being the underdog? Spain was a great Mm coloniser of Latin America. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering, how does that all affect Mm -hmm. writers today? And are they on par? Does one look down at the other? Is there a begrudging relationship there?
0: Yeah, I'm not sure uh, between writers whether there's much much of begrudgery between the, but it's quite true that there's always been a somewhat conflictive and difficult relationship between any imperial and colonising power such as Spain was with the, the, the former colonised countries I think it's fair to say that there's been some resentment in Spain at the lack of the uh, earlier subject we were talking about the translation of and indeed the popularisation of literature and in Spanish has, Latin America has indeed been privileged I think in the translation area you know in other words writers rather than Spanish writers have been privileged and I think there's always but the the feeling is mutual I think when you go to Latin America you discover there's a very interesting and conflictive attitude towards the mother country so Mm -hmm. uh, when I lived in in Mexico many years ago as a a postgraduate student uh, a lot of the people I got to know uh, in Mexico who were travelling to Europe they were actually avoiding Spain they were going to Paris or Berlin or London but they weren't going to Madrid and I I thought that was really interesting it was almost if Spain we don't want to know Spain you know so whether that's changing or not I'm not sure
2: and Miriam you're from Cadiz south of Spain, inequalities between the mother country and the colonies. Do you think that is a very simplistic way of looking at things now? Like obviously when you go to Central and South America, Spanish is spoken very differently and the words that are used to describe it's almost a very different language.
5: Yeah, I may have to agree with Kieran on that. Even uh, when you study at university you know, you said, I didn't study uh, Latin American literature. I I studied uh, literature, contemporaneous literature, and Latin American writers weren't included there we were there at the library and you could you always had someone in class that will tell you oh you need to read Octavio Paz and you need to go and and read García Márquez but that wasn't on the studies uh, in the plan for you to know Uh, we did read theatre novels everything there were Spanish writers
2: So Miriam in Cadiz you would have been introduced to the great Victorian British writers but you not necessarily would have heard about some of the great Mexican or Chilean or Argentinian writers That's interesting Well I studied in Trinity College Uh,
1: Kieran was actually my lecturer Mm. so I heard a lot of Latin American literature which I'm very privileged to have done I have to say I know I'm aware of uh, the conflict you know the slight tensions that are uh, mm. at play there between Spain and Latin America. As Kieran says, I'm not sure that that plays out so much within the literary field. You know, writers mm. tend to respect each other and they're curious about mm. what each other is writing. So I'm not sure. You know, that that's uh, an issue for writers. They they probably try to look on the positive or whatever each other's culture is doing. Okay, Kieran,
2: I'm going to get you to name me your five best Latin American writers. And <laughs> sure, we might throw in a bit of poetry as well there. And then, Miriam, I'm going to get you to say your five best Spanish writers. And to top off, I'm going to get you, Amory to pick the best three of the lot. <laughs> would that be fair? So off you go, Karen. I suppose
0: I should mention, the, the writer on whom I did my own doctoral thesis, yeah. which is Octavio Paz, a yeah. Mexican, Mexican poet writer, not yeah. just a poet, but also a prose writer, and one of his, his significant prose texts is a book called The Labyrinth of Solitude, mm-hmm. The Labyrinth de la Soledad, which came out in the 1950s, and was an exploration of the, of the relationship really, of what it meant to be Mexican and the relationship between, particularly, not so much Mexico and Spain, although there's some of that in the book, but also Mexico and the United States. So, so that that's a book I would recommend to who's got the Labyrinth of Solitude. I'd, I've already mentioned Pablo Neruda. His his trajectory uh, spans six or seven decades. You know, so you've got the you've got a huge difference between the type of poetry he was writing in the nineteen twenties. Ana Maria said she really liked the surrealist poetry of the nineteen twenties. But then you have after the Spanish Civil War, which again I think I would really emphasise is crucial. I think this was a, a real political transformation in the lives of so many of these writers. So you've got more kind of political size sort of poetry from the 1940s and 50s in, in Neruda and then a reversion to a more simple poetry in the 1960s and 70s just before he died coincidentally he died just a week after Pinochet coming to power in, in Chile I suppose that Garcia Marquez wouldn't be one of my favourite writers yeah. but at the same time I have to recognise that he is no, I think more than that I mean I think he has written particularly that novel A Hundred Years of Solitude which many people know but it, it really was a, a, a game changer I think in terms of prose writing and particularly in the nineties. 19- Sixties and 70s in Latin American writing, you know. Another uh, writer whom I admire tremendously but is not terribly well known in the English-speaking world is Juan Rufo, Mexican writer who really only wrote two works throughout his life. One, a novel called Pedro Paramo, Peter Wasteland it would Mm -hmm. be translated as, and uh, a collection of short stories, El Llano and Llamas, The Plane on Fire. And uh, I think uh, you know, we're still waiting for a really good translation of Juan Rufo because he used, he mixed a very vernacular language with uh, a kind of educated sort of Mexican Spanish and it's a, he's not an easy writer to translate I think I'm not sure if Ana Maria's had a go at it but I know one thing uh, one writer that Ana Maria in the past translated I think it's Juan Carlos Onetti El Pozo no? Did you do a translation? So
4: long
1: ago I can't okay. remember
0: <laughs> the, Who else would I say? I mean, Carlos Fuentes uh, Carlos Fuentes is a major writer I, he again I I wouldn't classify him as as a great novelist I think he was a very good thinker and I think his prose work outside of fiction Mm -hmm. is really and I should say that we in Trinity have an annual Mexican lecture i will get a plug in with this and Mm -hmm. um, uh, over the last 10 years or so and uh, we actually got Carlos uh, we do it in association with the Mexican Embassy Carlos Fuentes was the first person Mm -hmm. to give the annual Mexican lecture so we had a full house as Mm -hmm. you can imagine I think it was about 10 or 12 12 years ago Borges Borges for me probably would uh, top the list of Mm. the best writers uh, that I can think of in 20th century Latin America I mean he's just, he's again a minimalist writer, he didn't write huge tracts of prose as Mm. the short story is as indeed should say that the short story as a genre in Latin America is very very strongly developed you know and I I think Borges is, is clearly a Big, big influence in in the writers that came afterwards. You know,
2: and whether some people may disagree with me or not, some of the best writing that we have globally is the short story.
0: Mm-hmm, absolutely, and I, I think that's where Ireland and Latin America mm-hmm. come together. You know, because yeah. we've short story writing in, in in Ireland. You know, there's a very interesting, very good collection of, of stories uh, called Labyrinths. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. It's really the tra- translations of a, really a, a, a primary book of Borges called Fiction, Spanish, and I think Borges is where I would I would put at top of my <laughs> list. That's for sure.
2: Okay, now I'm around. Pressure is on
5: you. Pressure is on me. <laughs> okay, uh, if I have to choose five, it's curious enough because I do read a lot of prose, but uh, I will choose poets. Juan Ramón Jiménez, and he's not very well known in the in the uh, English-speaking world. I do love the way he creates images and the way he describes uh, rural uh, Andalusia from where I'm from. Uh, I think he's unique on what he does. Platerio is one of the best examples for that. I really like Zernuda as well, Luis Zernuda. I think... The passion and uh, the, the the way he describes love—it's is is uh, very very moving. Lorca, of course. Um, then I have should probably mention Ana Maria Matute, who left us recently. Uh, she she's uh, fantastic. She's fantasy mm-hmm. uh, uh, literature, and I think I'm gonna plug in uh, one of the writers from the <laughs> from the festival. <laughs> Thank uh, you, yeah. Uh, José Ovejero really uh, have caused an impression on me in the in the in the few books that I've been able to approach, and I think he he'll be very interesting for for anybody basically to have an impression on how people live in cities in Spain and how society behaves in Spain at the moment. Anna Maria, what's your choice? <laughs> okay, I'll have to give
1: more than two. The poet, the top poet, <laughs> <laughs> it definitely has to be Lorca. Not because we know him already, but because we need to know him better in English translation. I, I think guessing. Lorca suffers drastically from the fact that his language in Spanish is incredibly simple and incredibly beautiful and dynamic and rich. And somehow the same associations are not attached to those words when they're translated literally in English. So I think he falls flat a lot of the time in English. So I would ask people to look at Lorca again, to try as much as they can to, to read lots of different translations and try and pool together some sort of richer version of Lorca in English. In terms of uh, prose, I have to go with Borges. Uh, he's so imaginative. He just just opens your mind, it blows your mind actually, <laughs> uh, which is what really literature should be doing.
2: Well that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Next week I'm going to leaf through a selection of books on politics, women, big ideas and history. And I've a very interesting novelist lined up for you, so lots to look forward to there. Okay, today's music comes from Clint Mansell. Magui and Alberto Inglesius. Now, before I go, I'd just like to say a big congratulations to Trina nicuilla Quilla from Uchtar in County Galway, who was the first pass a post bright and early last Sunday morning with the correct answer to this month's Books Ireland's competition. Well done, Trina! Okay, all that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Owen Holligan and Jess Carley who helped out on this week's show, and the lovely Marianne Kennedy on sound. We've been talking books. I'd like to end this week's show with a rather moody, sexy, moochy little number to the words of the great Mexican poet and writer Octavio Paz, who cleverly observed when we learn to speak, we learn to translate.
4: Dicen que por las noches se le iba en puro Dicen que no comía no más se le iba en puro tomar. Juran que el mismo cielo se extremecía al oír su llanto. Cómo sufría por ella, que hasta en su muerte la fue llamando. Ai, 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 ai Cantar Triste, muy de mañana le va a cantar a la casita sola con sus puertitas de parental. Par. Juran que esa paloma no es otra cosa más que su alma.